You're listening to a chapel message from Trinity Christian College, recorded live at the Ozinga Chapel Auditorium in Palos Heights, Illinois. So good to be with you this morning, um, uh, Troll family. I bring you greetings from uh, your friends, Western Theological Seminary, your friends and family on the other side of the lake. And as Ben said at the very beginning of our time this morning, by way of an introduction to me, if you are interested uh, in, in continuing on in graduate theological studies, let your boy know. I'd love to have that conversation with you, all right? Um, but that's not what I'm here to talk about over these next few moments. This morning, my hope is to encourage you on the journey through the book of Exodus by sharing just a few thoughts in light of a few themes that have likely already been established, like redemption and how God proves not to be indifferent to Israel's plight and his move to redemptive action. This theme of sacred partnership and how God, in liberating Israel, taps Moses on the shoulder, so to speak, and invites him to join in this sacred participation and thus proves that in terms of God's missional activity on earth, the greatest resource that heaven has is not something, but someone. This is proven throughout the narrative of scripture when God wants to do something dynamic and redemptive in the realm of the earth. It's always someone that he invites to participate with him. A theme of covenant and how God makes and keeps his promises. And as the old gospel song goes, he may not come when you want him, but he's always right on time. He's an on-time God. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I could go on, but I'll stop there because I only got so much time. These themes, however, are not to be treated as tertiary. They matter and they beg for our consent, not just our mental assent. And so in the spirit of that, I want to read just one passage of scripture uh, again, because this will be the focus. This will be the base text for my thoughts this morning. It is Exodus uh, chapter 12, verses 32, where it says, take your flock and herds, as you have said, and go and also bless me. Narrated in this passage is the moment when Pharaoh admits defeat. He recognizes that Yahweh ain't no punk and ought not to be trifled with. It's interesting also that Pharaoh recognizes the benevolence of God. That God is not just showing out to be lauded and regarded as divine and iconic. Pharaoh realizes that God cares about the humanity in this this instance of Israel. He, God, brings to bear as such his might and his power for their cause and liberation. As such, Pharaoh says, go, but please also bless me. In other words, if God is interested in them, would he also be interested in me? Friends, let me just say this parenthetically. God's fight for you ain't just about you. Can I get an amen? Something of God's goodness towards you ought to cause others to see and say, can I get in on that? Would he be kind to me as he is to you? Clearly, your human and natural abilities are not the primary cause for these favorable outcomes that your life seems to demonstrate. As such, clearly, God is for you. And would he also, in similar way, be for me? In this sense, we prove what my grandmother used to say by way of a proverb of wives saying, baby, I am blessed to be a blessing. What God does for me ain't just for me. God is quite generous, and he is very indiscriminate in the way in which he demonstrates his benevolence towards all men, but we often are the reference point for his kindness. 
And this has always been the case. We know of God's goodness uh, primarily by his activity through the Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In your life and in my life, there are living, embodied people who are the reference for God's goodness. And it is because we see what he does in and through them that we are inclined to draw a little bit closer to him and not just treat him as a distant lover. And so Pharaoh seems to be as keenly aware of God's power and might as he is for God's uh, benevolence. And I think that's a challenge to each and every one of us, not to be stingy, not to hide our light, but to testify of who God is. Because if there is anything that impinges on the heart and mind of contemporary members of our society, the question is, who is God? What is he like? Does he care? Does he see? And something of our life ought to be a provocative answer to those deep questions. Back to the text. So we see here Israel on the cusp of their liberation from 430 years of serving under the hard hand of Pharaoh. That's a long time. And they're being uprooted from bondage and headed to the land of promise. But before they get to the land described as a land of milk and honey, they've got to go through the exodus time of transition from what had become painfully familiar to that which the hope for was unknown. You and I have the gift of hindsight. As such, we read this passage with relative understanding of the Exodus journey. We know that it took quite a long time. Some would say much longer than it actually needed to. But however, today, what I don't, what I don't want to do today is spend a lot of time trying to determine culpability and all of the things that caused their journey to be extended and delayed their arrival into this promised land. What I want to talk about today is what I would describe as the permanence of Exodus. It's the idea that we are constantly transitioning from a less preferred place to one that is more or less wanted and welcome. As Dr. Dallas Willis, Willis so wisely and famously said, Exodus is the permanent state of the soul. Liberation is an ongoing journey, not a one-time occasion. As such, there's just really one point, one question, one thought I want to leave you to ponder today, and that is this. What will you take on your Exodus journey? You'll eventually graduate and thus be liberated from the madness of cramming information in your head for quizzes. Can I get an amen? The day will come where you will not be overwhelmed by the burden to write papers about topics that you are not very interested in. And the emotional tax will eventually be done away with that comes to you by way of arbitrary figures referred to infamously as roommates. That resonated. <laughs> the day will come when you'll hear the words, go from this place. You'll be liberated. And whatever your journey will be, I assure you it will be like unto an exodus. Some things you will leave this place certain about, but there'll be a lot that remains to be figured out. It'll be an exodus season. And so I ask again, what will you take with you? For Israel, they took a few things. Noted in this passage was the unleavened dough and pots, both of which are pretty significant. I don't have much time to really explain that. I'm hoping that over the next few weeks, Ben and whoever else that will be behind this pulpit, that they will do that. 
But what we do know is this. Every time members of the Jewish community gather together to celebrate Passover, part of the features, one of the staples of that experience is this unleavened bread, which, is, which serves to remind the Jewish community of what happened long ago that has profound implications for the here and now. This bread reminds them of who they are by virtue of what God did for them. There's many things that that, 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 that that implies for them and to us as well, chief of which, not the least of which, is their identity. That they are to be known as the people that God fought for. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up not too far from here uh, in the inner city of Chicago on the north side. And as a young man navigating the, you know, my, my block uh, in a single-parent home without a father raised, there was, that was a precarious situation to be in. Now, I don't have to dramatize the situation to make the point, but it was risky. And I'll never forget, on one occasion, I was walking through the alley to go play basketball, and uh, there was a guy who thought that I was in a gang, and he pulled the gun out on me, okay? Not trying to be dramatic. I'm trying to illustrate the point. And I remember just being stuck and not knowing what to do. So he didn't do anything, thank God, and he walked away. Well, as he was walking away, um, a, another friend of mine, I mean, if you want to call him a friend, I mean, he was like a big, big brother. We didn't have a whole lot in common, none other than he just took time to play with little old me. But, but his name was Ray, and Ray was really big, and Ray was just not afraid of anything on two legs. And so he saw this guy that it just did, that threatened me. And I remember saying to Ray, Ray, that dude just tried to, to bully me. Again, Ray wasn't afraid. So Ray handled his business, which happened to be my business. I say that to say this, over the next couple of years, I was known as the kid who Ray fought for. Because Ray was big and mighty and strong. You think folks mess with me anymore? Not at all. And so what Israel did is they, they had this bread to remind them that they were the people that God fought for. That this would be their distinction. They were diminutive in stature and size as a nation, had no political clout. So what was their identity? The people that God fought for. And so as a young little whippersnapper walking around the hood, I was kind of cocky about the fact that Ray had fought for me. Mess with me if you want to. I know Ray. And yes, there were times where I got arrogant about that. But I was 10 years old. What's a little boy to do? And so Israel would gather annually, regularly, to remind themselves who they were as those that God had fought for. And so I ask you this question. When you leave from this place, the circumstances and trials of life are going to come and they're going to batter and buff you all over the place. The things, the linear stuff that you are studying and memorizing in the classrooms, which are really important to do, at some point they're going to be, be, be proven for what they are or what they are not. Either concepts or practical points of truth that you can assimilate into your life and help you navigate difficult situations. The certainty that you demonstrate right now in the classroom and amongst your peer groups is just a matter of time 
before circumstances of life challenge that and you find yourself without an answer for the contradictions of life. It is an exodus season. Now, I am an incurable optimist, and the last thing I want to do is end on a negative note. Man, that brother came and preached, and I'll feel worse now than I did when I came into this space. But what I do know as a 45-year-old man, married with six kids, been in ministry for quite a long time, as someone who was the first to graduate high school and college from my family, the first to buy a house in my family, the first to get a graduate degree in my family, to arrive at this place where I was liberated and found in this place that was supposed to be promised. But then on the other side of that, one occasion my wife's white blood cells dropped to one and they don't know what's going to happen. Is she going to live or is she going to die? I remember in faith trying to start an organization on the heels of getting fired from a job that was supposed to be the place of promise. And then being served to, be, to have that house that I bought to be taken away. I remember being invited into a space to work with a group of people that during the interview process proved to be for your boy. But years later were adversarial. There are moments where the place of promise also doubles and becomes the place of pain. And God shows up and he liberates you, sets you free. But there's going to be another moment of arrival, transition, exodus, arrival, transition, transition, exodus. Not always because of something that you've done. And when that happens, like Israel, you better have something that reminds you of the faithfulness of God. For Israel, there were many things noted in this passage. It's the bread. There are moments where God is showing himself to be for you even in this season of your life. Write it down in your journals. Notes that you've been given from professors or teachers or peers don't treat that stuff as vain. Because the day is going to come where you're going to have to do what I do anytime my back is against the wall. Right before I graduated from undergrad, 20 plus years ago, someone prayed for me. And it was on a tape. Later, when technology advanced, it's, it's crazy to even say that. <laughs> I was able to take what was on tape and put it on an MP3 player. And then they were able to then transfer it, and now it's on my iPhone. Anytime my heart gets anxious, I refer to my unleavened bread and remind myself, God, you were for me then, you've been with me throughout it, and you'll be with me now. God is not a vague deity in the sky. In this sense, we are, not uh, we are not deists. We don't believe that he created everything and then abdicated and left us to our own devices. He is with us in it. And there's a story of his redeeming power if we can soberly reflect. But because we have a tendency to forget, you got to write it down. 
on, in journals, on gadgets. Some folks tattoo it. I ain't endorsing the, 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 the foolery stuff. <laughs> but whatever you got to do, write down the places where you've seen God act. Because when your exodus season comes, you're going to need more than this degree. You're going to need more than pretty looks. You're going to need more than pure clout. You're going to need more than a fat bank account. You're going to need a reminder that come what may, God is for you. And that, my friends, is enough. Amen? Thank you for listening to Trinity Christian College's Chapel Podcast. To learn more about campus ministries at Trinity, visit trnty.edu slash chapel.